Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. All right. On this episode of the podcast, we talk about Intel's new 12th gen chips, more maxed out than the M1s. We talk about the Samsung Galaxy S22 leaks. And we talk about PlayStation and Sony clapping back by buying Bungie. Okay, on to topic number one. We're going to start off with Intel's new Alder Lake mobile chips. Now, their desktop versions have been out for a while, and they've, they're very powerful chips. Everything's had great things to say about them. But now, they've kind of come out with their first mobile version of their chip. And it's debuted in the MSI GE76 laptop. It features an Intel Core i9-12900HK, which is sort of their flagship of their 12th generation Alder Lake chips. And I guess one of the big things about it is over the past few years and over the past generations of chips, Intel has really fallen behind when it comes to power efficiency when you compare it to AMD and especially when you compare it to Apple and their M1 chips. And they've kind of changed the architecture of their chips this year and they have it as a sort of like a big little architecture, right? This 12th generation i9 chip has 14 cores. It has six performance cores and eight efficiency cores, which kind of allows it to be more power efficient than previous Intel chips. Another interesting thing about them debuting it in this MSI laptop is it's paired with a NVIDIA 3080 Ti. So not only does it have the most powerful Intel chip possible, it also has the most powerful NVIDIA graphics card possible. And some of the sort of benchmarks, some of the real world testing that we've seen from people, they haven't beaten pretty much every other laptop out there. And even beating every other MacBook, you know, when you look at the M1 Pros, the M1 Max chips, it's beating them in a lot of things too. So I guess my question to you is, have you seen a lot of the reviews? Have you seen a lot of this, you know, quote unquote, real world testing of these laptops? And what are your impressions of them? Yeah, so I have seen uh, some of the 12th gen launch, mostly on the desktop side, as opposed to the laptop side. I have seen some stuff on the laptop side, but I think the interesting thing is with Intel kind of leading with the 12900K, I think that's important because overall, uh, Intel's 12th gen, although it's it's a pretty nice improvement over 11th gen, most of 11th, 11th gen was really good as well. Um, but it just didn't get much talk because unfortunately, the flagship processor, like you mentioned, um, of last generation, the 11900K was really bad. Um, it was actually in a lot of cases worse than something like the i5-12600K, or sorry, 11600K. So it's a more expensive processor that performed worse than its less performant processors and cheaper processors, which is just weird. That's not something that should happen. Um, so that chip was a really big disappointment, but along the rest of the line, the chips were actually quite impressive, especially the i5s with the 11400K and the 11600, sorry, the 11400 and the 11600K. So yeah, it, it's nice to see that the 12900K is also a big performer. Like you mentioned, it has the new architecture with performance and efficiency cores. Um, and th there's two kind of interesting things. I don't know if the comparisons with M1 really make a ton of sense right now simply because m1 is always going to be more or not always but m1 is, is significantly more efficient um than x86 it's arm you know arm and be a lot more efficient than than x86 in its base uh, so even if we get like a really efficient x86 processor it's still going to be significantly you know significantly different in terms of efficiency and battery life and stuff like that and I've always said to me, as much as I think the the M1, M1 Pro, and M1 Max are a little bit overhyped, the one thing that I can't argue with is their efficiency. That is by far their uh, best feature. But with the uh, the 12th gen, I think one of the cool things to really 
really take in is that there's a very big range in the chips. So, for example, we have the new i5-12400, uh, which doesn't have um, efficiency and performance cores. Instead, it just has like a regular, you know, uh, chip layout like the 11400 did. And that's a good thing because it's a really strong performing processor. And, you know, comparing it to Intel's other big competitor, which is AMD, the price point is right. There's really nothing in the under $300 price range that's, you know, current from AMD that really compares with the uh, Intel's i5s, i5 processors, which is why, you know, I think there's a, probably a lot of less conversation around the 11 series because at the end of the day, there wasn't really anything that you could get besides it because with their best processors like the 11400 and 11600K, there was no other competition because everything else was so much more expensive. Um, mm -hmm. Since then, AMD has released the the 3600G, which is a little bit, you know, more affordable. But still, you know, Intel's really killing it there. So, yeah, it, it's really strange because with the 12th gen, we have really good uh, processors that are really good uh, in terms of price to performance and, and budget. So if you need a budget processor, you know, you have the new i3s and i5s that are great. And then finally, unlike the 11 series, uh, the, the flagship chip, the 12900, is also really really good so yeah they kind of just did a really good job across the line which despite the fact that the 11 gen was really good it wasn't a good across the line which they kind of fixed this year which is just great to see and then like you mentioned in laptops being able to air a chip like that with the most powerful mobile gpu it's you know a really impressive laptop that you know is just really really cool to see the one interesting thing though is going to be how these processors form outside of Windows 11. Because with the performance and efficiency cores, that is kind of a Windows 11 specific thing. Windows 10 doesn't really handle that well. Um, and I guess that's the benefit, once again, going to Apple of having a fully integrated system of, you know, having the software and hardware be created by the same company. With Intel and Microsoft, you know, Windows 11 is really well prepared for this performance and efficiency core type design, but Windows 10 is not. So, you know, for a lot of those more performant processors, it might not make sense to prepare that to pair that with a Windows 10 PC. But, you know, who knows, maybe there's an update coming down the line that kind of makes it a little bit better. But right now, that's not really the mm -hmm. case. Yeah. I mean, and you brought up a good point, you know, it's comparing this to Apple isn't necessarily fair, because especially when you look at Okay, if we're talking about the MSI GE76, which is the only chip that this, you know, the 12900HK is in right now, it is not the same kind of laptop as a MacBook Pro. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, it's definitely a dedicated gaming laptop. It has an RGB keyboard. It has a nice RGB strip across the bottom. It has a 1080p, I think 360 hertz screen. This is meant for gaming all the way. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up a good point. One of the big things about MacBooks is, or one of the big things about M1s is their power efficiency. This is not a power efficient laptop at all. It's kind of by design. It's something that's meant to be, okay, you're stationary at a desk. Mm -hmm. You have a power source. It's probably going to be plugged in. You're probably going to be gaming and you want to get the most power out of this thing possible now. You know, it's not as portable as a MacBook. It doesn't look as nice as a MacBook, depending on who you are, right? Um, but it's bigger, it's heavier, but because it's bigger, it has better cooling capabilities, better thermal regulation. And partly because it has such a powerful chip, partly because it has such a powerful GPU, but I mean, that's the nature of the game when it comes to gaming laptops. Whereas... When it comes to MacBooks, you can't game on a MacBook. I mean, there's probably a few games you could play, but if you're a serious gamer, you need to play on a Windows device. So, you know, a lot of times things get compared to Apple products or MacBooks or what have you because they're kind of, they're consensus, they're seen as a consensus good laptop or mm -hmm. good phone or good tablet. So... They're not necessarily after the same type of people, but, you know, when Apple comes out with a new laptop every year, it's, oh, we beat, you know, 
this competitor by X amount and we beat this other competitor by a hundred times. So it's nice to see another competitor be able to outdo Apple and all of all of their outrageous graphs and outrageous claims. But you also brought up another good point. They have a wide range of chips, you know, from the different versions of their i9s to the different versions of their i7s, their i5s. So I think what's really going to be interesting is when you take like one of their i5 processors and you put it in a thin and light mobile laptop that's not meant for gaming, that's meant for, let's say, power efficiency. That's meant for a student who's going to class and has to do work in the library and then take notes in a lecture and then, you know, on the commute back home from school, maybe do some work too. So they start off with this flagship chip, the best of the best, but I'm interested to see how Alder Lake does, I guess, in, in a number of different SKUs and different model laptops with different, well, I guess, different price points and also different use cases. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that the going forward, the sweet spot is probably going to be the 12600K, um, an overclockable CPU. I would imagine there's probably going to be uh, a nice mobile version of that with something like a uh, an NVIDIA GTX or RTX 3070. And we've seen similar machines with the 11600 and 3070s uh, that are fantastic. And, you know, that was a lot of the conversation I had around, or we had around the M1, when even when we were talking about the Pro and the Max, and, and you know, I mentioned, you know what, it's not as exciting as as m1 was and a lot of it was because of hype like m1 was very very hyped and unfortunately the reality of m1 doesn't live up to a lot of the the hype that was that was brought about at the time because remember when m1 first came out it was very exciting and we were seeing all those graphs it seemed like m1 was going to be something like that was going to break the laws of physics that you know it was <laughs> much better than anything could ever be ever um, which it turned out not to be true, right? Like there's there's a limit, you know, they talked about how graphics performance was going to be better than a, than a RTX 3080. That's absolutely not the case um, with the Pro and the Max chips. But, you know, the one thing that they did do very well is efficiency and, you know, really good uh, performance in apps that are optimized for M1. Now, with things like the Adobe Suite and stuff like that that aren't fully optimized yet, I think... You know, there was there was already uh, Windows laptops and Intel powered laptops, not to mention AMD, um, who's been doing really well with Ryzen for a very long time now, especially on the mobile end, because they make some super efficient mobile chips that perform really well as well. Um, a lot of that was being ignored in that conversation. And I'm just glad to see that that conversation is starting to flip around a bit to see, no, there actually is really great stuff from Intel and AMD especially when they're paired with powerful GPUs that can do a lot um, in a professional workflow, especially if you're someone who, you know, you need a machine and your apps aren't optimized for M1 yet and you need something right now, you're not, you know, you're not stuck with nothing. There's a lot of really great stuff out there. And mm -hmm. Intel's finally got their kind of, their act together with their flagship chips so that, you know, like I mentioned, the 11900 was such a bad chip that its cheaper chips were outperforming it, which just doesn't make any sense. That would be like if an M1 <laughs> Max was being outperformed by a base M1. It just wouldn't make any sense, right? So, yeah, to finally see that this this is actually working the way it's meant to is 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 great to see. Yeah, definitely great to see. On to our second topic of the day. We're talking about everything S22. Now, we are recording this on February the 2nd. The S22 Unpacked event is scheduled for February the 9th. So this is, you know, a week ahead of when the actual event is. But pretty much every possible thing has leaked for this event. Unofficial high-quality renders have been out for quite some time now. Specs have been out for quite some time now. We've recently even got pricing for a lot of, a lot of their devices, too. Um, so yeah, we're going to kind of summarize all of the leaks, let you know what we think about them and it should be interesting. So of course, when it comes to the processor, right, 
since Qualcomm announced the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1, we kind of figured, okay, that is going to be in the next Samsung S22 phones. Especially in North America. In Europe, we're going to get the new Exynos 2200 chip. The S22 and S22 Plus are supposed to have a similar, almost identical design to the S21 and S21 Plus last year. Um, they have 120 hertz OLED displays, ultrasonic in-display fingerprint sensors. Their displays are slightly smaller at 6.1 inch, uh, 6.1 inches and 6.6 inches. They have a higher peak brightness. One interesting thing is the devices are slightly shorter and slightly thinner and a slightly smaller battery going at 3,700 milliamp hours for the S22 and 4,500 milliamp hours for the S22 Plus. Another interesting thing, they both apparently will have a 50 megapixel main camera, which is going to allow for better nighttime photography and, you know, better low light photography. Now, from the, from the leaks, from the things we've seen from the S22 and the S22 Plus, how do you feel about these two phones? You know, with the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1, with the screen sizes sticking relatively the same and a slightly smaller battery. Uh, well, first of all, the design I actually really like. I, I like the downplayed camera bump. Um, I'm not a big phone photographer, so the idea that there isn't 50 cameras on the back is, is really cool. There's three on the S22 uh, and S22 Plus, and it's a much flatter bump. It's not as big as it was on the S21, which is nice as well, at least for me. Um, but the size, I'm so glad that the phone's got a bit smaller because both the S22 and the S22 Plus, I think, are perfect sizes. Um, you know, the S22 is a little bit smaller than my current phone, which is the Xiaomi Mi 9T. And the S22 Plus is a little bit bigger with a, an even larger screen. But the, the size difference between my current phone and that phone are so small that it really makes me think, oh, you know what, that might be my next phone. I've had this phone for just about three years now. And I don't really need anything new. But the idea that there is actually really good small phones coming out is, is nice to see. The 120 hertz, great. Um, under display fingerprint sensor, something I wish they would just put the fingerprint sensor on the side, um, kind of like what Sony does. Under display, uh, I think you've had experience with this, uh, like you mentioned, it can be a little bit slow. And uh, honestly, I, I've never used my under display fingerprint sensor on my current phone, mainly because of that, but also because it's just not all that convenient. It's not something you can easily see where it is when you're not using it. So it's kind of just not a great design. I don't know why a lot of companies are still staying with it, even though it sounds cool. In practice, it's not really all that practical. But yeah, overall, I think the design of the phones is really cool. The interesting thing is I did see on YouTube just an advertisement from the Samsung channel uh, for their Exynos uh, chip, their 2200 chip, which is strange because we talked about, hey, it's probably delayed. And they're still thinking about talking about it in their event, even though they might not ship any devices with it right away. Maybe it, it's just best not to talk about it, but they've already started advertising their next Exynos chip, which is going to have uh, RDNA 2 uh, graphics from AMD, similar to the Steam Deck and the same kind of architecture that was used in the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X. Uh, so that's really exciting. And I'm kind of curious to see if maybe they decide to delay the phones altogether and maybe try to get those chips in the phones, or if we might see something else like maybe a Galaxy Tab from them in their next event that could have these chips, could be the first device that ships with these chips. But yeah, it's just, I really like the the choices that they made with these phones. And I'm kind of excited to see the Galaxy Unpacked event. Unfortunately, it's just a little bit unfortunate. We talked about it on the podcast in the past that they leaked because it could have been really cool to see these things, although it's it's not that big of a surprise. It's pretty similar to last year's devices, but mm -hmm. still, I imagine a lot of people are probably upset that all this stuff leaked because pretty much everything is out there, um, yeah. even the dimensions of the phone. So, yeah, it, it's but it's cool to see. I'm really excited about what these phones are. I think the most, uh, I guess the biggest letdown that we won't be surprised with is the S22 Ultra because, you know, as we mentioned, 
the S22 and S22 Plus, they look pretty much the same mm-hmm. as last year's phone. But the S22 is such a radical redesign from what they did last year that that could have been something really cool where it's like, okay, you know, yeah, it's the same phone, essentially, a new chip, a better screen, a little bit smaller. And then the S22 Ultra would come out of nowhere and be like, oh my gosh, this is completely different. Like, yeah, did not see this coming, but we've seen it coming. And another interesting thing is they have called this event the most noteworthy S-series ever. Mm-hmm. You know, emphasis on the note there. We've talked in the past, we talked last year about there not being a note and is the note going to be done with? It really seems like they're hinting at the S22 Ultra is going to replace the Note line or really the Note line has just been rebranded to the S22 Ultra. Really? Yeah. Um, It's a completely different design when you compare it to the regular S22 and S22 Plus. You can't really call it the same phone. It is a Note more than anything. When you term, in terms of, you know, it's more of a boxy design, it's more of a squared off screen, and it has a built-in slot or a built-in silo for the S Pen. This is a note that is just being called an S22 Ultra. I guess maybe so people don't get confused with when it comes out or, you know, for whatever reason, they're calling it an S22 Ultra. It has the same size screen as last year's model, the 6.8 inch screen. It has the same size battery. 5,000 milliamp hours, the same weight thickness. It's essentially the same phone, just redesigned to look like a note. But an interesting thing, you know, you brought up is the supply chain issues. Along with specs and, you know, dimensions and renders, there have also been some leaks as to when things will be available for pre-order. It's supposed to be immediately after the event. You can pre-order everything February 9th. The S22 Ultra is supposed to be able to ship or it's going to be delivered February 25th. The S22 and S22 Plus won't be available until March 11th. So already it seems like there is going to be some sort of, you know, delay because of global supply chain issues. Um, Interesting that we know that or that we've heard that before the event even, you know, even happens. And another thing that has leaked is the pricing. So these are rumors. Once again, this isn't confirmed, but if it is true, then you guys heard it here first. The Galaxy S22. Actually, no, before I do that, I'd like to hear your uh, guesses on what the prices will be. Because I don't think that you've seen the leaked prices yet. I have not. And this is one really interesting thing because... Looking at the phones, I was like, oh, yeah, this could be something I, I could upgrade to um, or I could see myself upgrading to if the price is right. So I'm going to, did they, the price leak for all three or just or just the S22 and S22 all Plus? Three. Okay. All right. So I'll give, um, I'll give what I hope the prices are for the S22 and S22 Plus and then what I think the price will be for the S22 Ultra. Um, for the S22, I hope, the price is in US dollars somewhere in the six ninety nine to seven ninety nine price range. Although I think that's still too high for me, I think that's a good price range for, you know, uh a flagship phone. And then I hope that the, you know, S twenty two plus is a hundred dollars more than that. So um six ninety nine, seven ninety nine, um is what I'm hoping. Um, oh, sorry, for the S twenty two plus so it'd be seven ninety nine to eight ninety nine. Well, what I would hope is that the S twenty two is six ninety nine and the S twenty two plus is seven ninety nine, so seven hundred and eight hundred dollars. Okay. Um, like I said, still too high for me, but you know, I've, phones have gotten so expensive these days. I I hope it's not more than that. And then for the Ultra slash Note, uh, I am just gonna guess that it's gonna be a ridiculously priced phone and gonna be like fourteen hundred dollars. Um, I really hope it's cheaper than that, but you know, I'm just gonna go crazy because I do remember, I believe it was the S20 or Note 20. The Note 20 Ultra was such a ridiculously expensive phone that it, it was kind of it was kind of insulting 
that they would make a phone that expensive. And then that's why I wasn't surprised that there was no Note 21. Because I'm like, well, why would anyone want <laughs> if it's going to be that price? But yeah, okay. So those are my guesses. Seven, uh, $699, $799, and $1399. Those are good guesses. Be exactly right. I'm not going to say anything just yet. If they are, I didn't know beforehand. Yeah, guys, this isn't a conspiracy. <laughs> okay, so from last year, S21 was $799. S21 Plus was $999. S21 Ultra was $1199 from last year. After seeing those, do you want to change your estimates at all? No, I'm going to hope that, that uh, you know, they, they found some cost-cutting and, and were able to get the phones a little bit cheaper. So... The prices of their S22 phones are exactly the same as their S21 phones. Oh, okay. So the S22 is $799 at the top of your range. S22 Plus is $999, so a bit above your range, about $100 more, but it's the same as it was last year. Mm. The S22 Ultra, $1199, so $200 less than what you said, and still the same price as last year. Um so after seeing that, does that kind of change what you think about the phones? I mean, it is they are slightly smaller, slightly better specs in some aspect, and they haven't really, well, no, they haven't changed the prices, right? And I think last year with the S21 phones, if I remember correctly, they actually were $100, $100 cheaper than the S20 phones were. Yeah. So at least not going up in price. Yeah. I mean, the S20 line was, there's a reason why the <laughs> S20 fan edition happened so quickly. And it's because that line was a failure. No one wanted those phones because they weren't mm -hmm. very good, uh, especially on the camera side. And they were ridiculously overpriced. And the S21 was kind of like the fixer for that. A lot of people really liked the S21 series, especially when compared to the S20. That being said, I am a little disappointed. I was hoping that we would kind of see a continuation of that price decrease. Um, mm -hmm. And even though the the Ultra is still the same as last year's, I I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I know I, I said it was going to be, a, I thought it might be a little bit more expensive just because the Note Ultra was ridiculous, but um, from, 20, from the S20 line. But... You know, I, still, I would really hope for these price, these phones to get a little bit cheaper, especially, you know, with the S21, or sorry, the S22 and S22 Plus, they can be a little bit simpler phones. Like, they don't have 20 cameras on the back, like I mentioned. The, the Ultra does. The Ultra has a ton of cameras and a ton of sensors and stuff like that. So I, I feel like they could potentially make those phones a little bit cheaper um, going forward. But... I, I am definitely not the regular consumer, especially in North America. In North America, most people get their phones through carriers and they're subsidized. So they don't really ever see that, that full retail price. It's really only the people who buy their phones unlocked uh, who, who actually see those prices. So, and that's, that's a huge minority. I'm one of those people who like to get their phone, likes to get their phones unlocked um, instead of paying on, on a contract. But yeah, that's not most people. So I can definitely see why it doesn't really make much sense to make the phones cheaper, especially in North America, when most people are going to be getting them on a contract anyways. And if you look at the S22 Ultra, I mean, it kind of is cheaper because if you wanted an S21 Ultra with an S Pen, then you mm -hmm. had to pay for the S Pen and you had to definitely. pay for a case for it. True. Now you're getting an integrated S Pen. So it sort of is a little bit cheaper in a way yeah. um some other stuff that is supposed to be announced we're supposed to be getting a new lineup of galaxy tab s8 tablets um they're supposed to be just the regular tab s8 a tab s8 plus and a new tab s8 ultra edition and those screens are supposed to go from 11 inches to 12.7 inches to 14.6 inches and they're all supposed to feature the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 processor. Now, maybe, you know, as you said, in Europe, we may get those same tablets with an Exynos 2200. But as someone who uses a Galaxy tablet, is this something that, you know, you're intrigued in or you're interested to see what kind of features they add? 
you know, what kind of specs we may get from these because they're all supposed to feature a 120 hertz display. Something that, okay, if we're talking about Apple, because as I said, everything gets compared to Apple products, that was only on the Pro model. So now all three versions of their tablets are supposed to get a high refresh rate. The Plus and the Ultra are supposed to have OLED panels. Is this something that is intriguing to you or how do you feel about it? Um, I think this, that idea kind of reminds me a little bit, once again, I'm going to bring up the S20 line of the S20 line. Uh, when the S20 line came out, there was the S20, the S20 Plus, the S20 Ultra, the Note 20, and then the Note 20 Ultra. Just way too many devices. Like It didn't really make much sense. And I think that could be the same thing for these tablets. I don't know why there needs to be so many versions of these tablets because they all sound like they're going to be pretty premium with those specs like Snapdragon uh, 8 Gen 1 and, you know, high refresh rate screens. They'll sound like they're probably going to be expensive devices. Not to mention on, you know, the more expensive devices, I imagine there's going to be a lot of features or missing features that Apple kind of coined that, a lot of companies are starting to copy like no headphone jack, which on a tablet to me makes absolutely no sense. But um, that's something that that I, I can see them doing. So if these are like really expensive or not expensive, but more premium devices, missing things like headphone jacks and stuff like that, that doesn't really do much for me. I think the reason why the uh, Galaxy Tab S6 Lite is such a great tablet, in my opinion, and, and why I love it so much is one, it's super affordable. Two, it only has the features that you need. So the screen isn't fantastic. It's not an OLED screen. It's an LCD screen. It's not the greatest screen in the world, but it's good. It's a good screen. The battery life, it's good battery life. It has a headphone jack. It's, you know, it has an S Pen in the box uh, that you don't have to pay extra for. Those are the things that, you know, make sense to me when it comes to a tablet. Now, that being said, I, I definitely think there's a place for premium tablets, especially Samsung makes some fantastic premium tablets. But the idea that there would be three, um, to me, seems like it's just too much tablets, too many tablets to be making. Uh, and then it also makes me think that they're probably not going to make a, a Tab S8 Lite, uh, which, honestly, I don't even know if they really need to. Uh, I think for a lot of people, the... The A series is probably good enough. They don't support the S Pen, but they could do a, a an A8 tablet, and, and it could meet most people's needs. But yeah, I, I would like to see another light tablet from Samsung eventually. Uh, it doesn't have to be this year, but three premium tablets to me seems like way too much. But I'm curious, how about you? I mean, this is them trying to compete with, I would imagine, the iPad Air, iPad Pro 11, and then iPad Pro 13. Do you think Samsung needs to compete with Apple in that same way, or, or should they just kind of, you know, stick to their guns, make their premium tablet, and then make a budget tablet for everyone else? Uh, I, I, th I kind of think that they do need to compete with Apple in that way, mm. just because when it comes to their phones, right, they definitely make flagship phones that directly compete with Apple's iPhones, but they also offer things that Apple doesn't. For Android, Android has a lot of features that Apple products and iPhones just won't have, not to mention their whole stylus ecosystem with their phones. I mean, they kind of, they brought it a bit to their non-note phones last year. Now, it seems like we're going to get an S22 with a built-in stylus, and there's no talks, there's no rumors, there's no sort of inkling that Apple is even considering bringing that to iPhones, which I think would be a huge game changer for Apple if they hey, said our new iPhone 14 Pro Max is compatible with our Apple Pencil 3. I think people would go bonkers for that. Yeah. But they're probably not going to do that because then you won't need to buy an iPad and, you know, too much fragmentation uh, or not enough fragmentation <laughs> of their ecosystem. But when it comes to the tablets, I like the idea of the three versions because now, especially if you take out the Note, it matches up perfectly with the three versions of their phones. Yeah. Right? And now we have, from what we've seen of how they look, it doesn't seem like they mirror the look of their phones. But when you talk about, okay, marketing, it's you have, an S, you have just the basic entry level, S22. 
you want a little bit bigger. We have the S22 Plus. You want the very best we have. That's what Ultra is. And I think that's also another reason why they kind of, they're doing away with the Note lineup because when you have the S20 Ultra, that's supposed to be the best thing. But there's a Note and there's a Note Ultra. So it's really not the best thing. Yeah. But now when you hear Ultra from Samsung, that means the best. Yeah. So the best phone, S22 Ultra. The best tablet, the S8 Ultra. Just like for the past two years or past, yeah, past two years at least, they've been doing a fan edition. I could see them replacing the Tab S8 Lite with, let's say, a Tab S8 Fan Edition mm. that comes out later on in the year at the same time as the S22 Fan Edition. And I could see that being a more consistent messaging, uh, a more consistent message marketing-wise for them, right? So they have the three, okay, the S8, S8 Plus, S8 Ultra, S8 Fan Edition. I could see that carrying across all of their different products, or at least, you know, their consumer-facing products. I could see they might not do this with their watches, but I could see them maybe trying to do this with their watches. So there's a consistent message between, okay, the regular, the Plus, and the Ultra. You know what you're getting. You know what you're paying for. And when you look at iPhones, right, it's kind of there's a mini or not even just iPhones, I guess. And, you know, when you look at Apple products, there's usually a mini, there's usually a base model, and then there's a pro. And when it comes to Apple, you know, the mini is going to be a little bit smaller, probably a bit less expensive. The pro is going to be bigger than everything else, more expensive, the best features. And then there's just the baseline. So with their marketing with apple's marketing they have a pretty consistent message pretty consistent you know pronouns and and adjectives that they add on to things so you know what you're getting performance wise and you know what you're getting price wise with this new naming scheme if they do follow it i think it kind of clears up the marketing and messaging for samsung also so i think to me it makes a lot of sense um we'll see once again, if they actually go with this marketing, because these are all rumors as of right now, you know, a week away from the event. But I'm definitely excited to see them compete with Apple, maybe a little bit more directly in the tablet space. And also, they offer a lot of things like DeX, like better multitasking that Apple just doesn't do. So I'm also looking forward to maybe taking some market share away from Apple and then forcing them to improve on what they do on their tablets. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that. I think you're 100% right with the with the branding of it falling in line with the phones. They did do what you mentioned, like with the Tab S7. They later on released a fan edition. The interesting thing with that, though, and I don't know, maybe it's just might be a situation where Samsung might try to get out of the budget tablet space maybe it's just not something that's that's really all good for for their branding but when the tab s6 came out it was very affordable sometimes you could even get it when it was new for as low as 299 usd the s7 light tab s7 light was much more expensive and you know kind of closer to the five six hundred dollar range so the idea that you know they might be going away from that budget tablet kind of idea. I get it. I, I think it, it makes sense. The, the, the only thing, my apprehension with them competing with Apple on that way means that we'll probably see less budget tablets that have S Pen support. Because I think they're always going to do their A series and their cheap tablets, but those don't have S Pen support. So the fact that they made this, this kind of really great device that could be as low as $299 has a 10 inch screen really good design, decent screen, and has S Pen support right out, right in the box, to me was like a deal, a value that Apple couldn't compete with, um, which is why I went for that over uh, the base iPad. But, you know, if they get away from that, I understand that there's more money in the, in the higher margin, more expensive tablets. It's just a shame because that's something that Apple doesn't do currently, um, the app that Samsung did. And it seems like they might be going away from that. But I do think what you're saying makes sense of the tablets line coinciding with the phone line, which, which yeah, it's a really good idea. To be clear, I still think they should do budget tablets and offer S Pens with that. Uh, yeah, I definitely think they should compete with Apple. 
but I also think they should continue to do things that Apple isn't doing. Yeah. Maybe to put some pressure on them to do better, you know, to make more budget-friendly devices with more features, but also it's something that is successful. I mean, we don't have their books. We don't know what their numbers are. It's something that seems successful, I guess, from the outside. Um, and I think it's definitely something that the market needs. And, you know, as we've said multiple times on the podcast, just because Apple doesn't, just because Apple does something doesn't mean everyone needs to necessarily go and follow them. So yeah. for the record, I'm a fan of budget tablets with S pens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. Our final topic for the day. Sony has clapped back at Microsoft and bought Bungie, the studio originally responsible for Halo and responsible for Destiny, and they've purchased them for $3.6 billion. Um, in our last podcast, in our last episode, we were kind of saying, hey, you know, are we going to see some sort of retaliation? Are we going to see some sort of escalation from Sony possibly in the future? Well, we didn't have to wait long. They've done it. The interesting thing, or not necessarily the interesting thing, it makes a lot of sense, but Bungie will continue to independently publish and creatively develop their games. And they will continue to make games and, you know, future things that they develop multi-platform. So with our talk last episode, we're kind of worried, hey, could we see a future where Call of Duty no longer comes out on PlayStation? It's only an Xbox exclusive. I think with Sony purchasing Bungie, and as soon as they purchase it, everyone's saying, hey, we're not doing this to make Bungie games console exclusive to PlayStation. We're not doing it to take them away from Xbox. We want everyone to play our games on any platform, whether it's PlayStation, Xbox, whether it's Google Stadia, whether it's, you know, Microsoft, Windows. I think that's a good thing for the gaming industry as a whole, because I think in large part it's because they understand that, hey, there's a lot of money to be made. Why are we going to give away like half of our profits just to say that you can only play this on PlayStation or you can only play this on Microsoft? I know it's, it's definitely driven by money, but I think for the gaming community, it's good that both sides have their, let's say, their IP that they could make console exclusives. But they're saying, no, we want these communities that have been developed on Xbox, developed on PlayStation, developed on Windows. We want you to continue playing these games where you've been playing these games all along. But I'm interested to hear what are your thoughts on this recent purchase from PlayStation, from Sony, what do you think it means for the future of the gaming landscape? Uh, well, first of all, I think that that statement is a lie. Um, <laughs> I think 100%. First of all, I think this purchase is kind of the biggest meme purchase I've ever seen, especially for, for video games. The interesting thing is Bungie not too long ago was a part of Activision. They only recently split up with Activision and they had a pretty big falling out with Activision in terms of how Activision was kind of forcing microtransactions onto Destiny. I don't know if, if you guys remember, I think it was called like Glitter or something like that. There was like a store. Uh, Isn't it Glimmer? Glimmer, there you go. Uh, but it wasn't Glimmer. It was actually another currency that they introduced afterwards where you could go to like a, a Postmaster and you can buy like cosmetics and stuff like that with real world money that you transferred into an in-game currency and then you could get like, and I'm pretty sure that still exists to this day, but... That was kind of an initiative brought on by Activision um, after they bought Bungie. And one of the interesting things is when Bungie and Activision finally split, Bungie was very clear about, hey, we're taking back control of Destiny. We're going to do things the way we want to do them. No more Activision kind of getting in, in you know, into our pockets, so to speak, or into your pockets as, as players. But the interesting thing is they were very happy about splitting up to then go back to a big company. I'm sure that's really great for them in terms of, of job security, but also kind of weird considering that they just fought really hard to get their independence. But also, like you mentioned, Bungie is the game, the studio that made Halo. And it, it feels like a huge meme because one, Bungie is a name that has been tied with Xbox for so long. Uh, and two, they were a company that used to work with Activision. So it seems like the exact opposite 
what uh, the purchase that, that Microsoft made um, with Activision. That being said, I think the whole reason for this is when and if Call of Duty becomes or starts to lose support on PlayStation devices, uh, this is Sony's way of saying, well, we can make a top-tier FPS. Like, you know, you mentioned, we talked about uh, the Activision purchase in the last podcast, but we also brought up Bungie. We talked about how, you know, they made Destiny and they had really good relationships with Sony and about getting exclusives with things like Hawkmoon, um, which was a really big gun in Destiny, and then even exclusive maps that took years to show up on Xbox. Um, and that was a relationship that they had, but also a relationship that Sony had with Call of Duty. You know, Call of Duty got exclusives on PlayStation early as well. So if that kind of switches over under Microsoft's ownership to have those kinds of things switch over to Xbox consoles or even full exclusivity, this is the perfect way of Sony being able to say, well, we have the best, maybe, possibly, the best FPS maker in the world that can make us an exclusive game. It maybe Destiny 3 is a PlayStation exclusive, or maybe they make a brand new IP that goes toe to toe with Call of Duty and it's a PlayStation exclusive from Bungie. I think this is their way of answering that. And most importantly, I think why this is important for Sony is because I don't think Xbox wants any activation game to be Xbox exclusive. What they want is they want Game Pass to be available on PlayStation. And PlayStation knows that that it i think they know at the back of their head that it's kind of like a trojan horse of xbox wants game pass on our system we won the console market but really does that matter at the end of the day where we make our money is on game sales and could xbox getting a, a trojan horsing a, a system like game pass onto our console similar to what ea did with ea play could that hurt our business long term and how do we fight the urge of actually wanting to adopt something like Game Pass on our console if they say we can't get Call of Duty without it or you can't get Overwatch 2 without it? Um, and their, their way to do that is to buy studios to make competitors to those, those games. And Budgie is, is probably the perfect, not even probably, it is the perfect uh, answer to that. Uh, you know, Sony already makes great, you know, single-player games with Uncharted and, and Last of Us and and all those stuff that they do so well. They don't have a first-person shooter game maker. Like, they, they Guerrilla Games has moved on from, from making first-person shooters, and they've been a lot better since. So why not pick up the best first-person shooter game creator so that, you know, we don't have to worry about what Xbox does going forward. So, yeah, I, I don't think that, that that statement is necessarily true. I think the moment that they can, they will start making Bungie games exclusive. But I don't know. How do you feel about it? I am very optimistic for the future. Mm -hmm. um, I think everyone's going to play along nicely. We're going to continue to get Call of Duty on PlayStation. We're going to continue to get Destiny on Xbox. But that is interesting that you brought up possibly getting Game Pass on PlayStation. Uh, you know... I never really thought of that as a real possibility, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, PlayStation has definitely won the console war, but what does it matter if then you get Xbox Game Pass on PlayStation? Like you said, most of the money that's being made is on game sales after the fact. So let's say you get Xbox on PlayStation and then PlayStation players get used to playing Xbox games with Game Pass and say, oh, you know, I, I'm not at home. I can play this on my phone or I can play this on my Galaxy Tab S8 Ultra. And then the next time there's a console refresh, people are thinking to themselves, hey, I don't really play that much on my PlayStation 5. I can play this anywhere. I'm already paying for it. Why would I bother buying PlayStation 6 if... All the games that I play already are on Xbox Game Pass. They come out day and date. You know, they. I don't have to worry about downloading this game or going out and buying this game or paying $70, $90 per game. It's just a simple $15 fee. That's, I mean, that definitely seems like a Trojan horse to me, but that is if one day we get Game Pass on, on PlayStation. 
right? If we one day get Game Pass on PlayStation, that's definitely a that's definitely a, a winning strategy for Xbox. I would like to think that both companies, both um, you know, Microsoft and Sony understand that hey, to make the most money possible for us. We're going to keep these games multi-platform so that you keep your games multi-platform and we can all make money together. I don't think they necessarily need to say, hey, we're going to take over this market so you can't make any money, even though we're going to make less money than we would if we all just kept everything multi-platform. I hope that that's kind of how these companies are thinking that we're going to make everything multi-platform so everyone can play and everyone can give us their money. But I mean... Who knows? Only time will tell. Well, I, I definitely think Xbox's, or not even Xbox, Microsoft's future is third party. I think they are looking to become, to becoming a third party, which is why I don't think it's a coincidence that Phil Spencer is now the head of Microsoft Gaming and not the head of X- Xbox. Uh, I think there's definitely some change coming. You might even see a change to Xbox Game Pass being called Microsoft Game Pass uh, in the not too distant future. But yeah, they definitely want Game Pass on any everything. And the interesting thing is the ball is in Sony's court, really, because something like Call of Duty not being on a PlayStation console is like 75% of game sales. A Bungie game not being on an Xbox console, much less, 25%, a quarter of consoles. So there's much less to lose for Sony making a Bungie game exclusive. And I think Sony knows that. I think Bungie knows that. I think Microsoft knows that. And it goes back to the fact that Microsoft really did lose the console war. It's kind of the reason why, you know, despite the fact that so many Switches sold, a lot of third parties aren't making games for the Switch because the Wii U sold 13 million units. And a lot of companies got burned from trying to support that console. And I feel like the same thing is going to happen with with Xbox. Xbox uh, One sold a lot less units than the PlayStation. And a lot of companies that especially who who made deals with Microsoft got burned on that. And I think Microsoft knows it. And I think the only way of them going forward, or not the only way, but the probably the most successful way they see themselves going forward is with Game Pass and going third party and having Game Pass available on everything. So it doesn't matter if you have a PlayStation, you can play Halo as long as you subscribe to Game Pass doesn't matter if you have a PC. You can play Call of Duty as long as you subscribe to Game Pass. doesn't matter if you have your phone. You know, you can play whatever you want as long as you subscribe to Game Pass. And I think that's definitely the future of Xbox and Microsoft. But I'm, I also think it's Sony is very much like, we don't want any part of that. We don't want mm-hmm. to be a part of you bringing about this new subscription service and leaving us, you know in an old style or you know a previous generation style uh, market where we're about selling consoles and selling games at $90 or 60 to $90 a piece we don't want to help you so i think this is their way of fighting back the the need to help microsoft by saying we'll just make competing games um and try to hold out as long as they can until they get their subscription service built it's kind of like a, the streaming wars with Netflix and Disney Plus and HBO Max and all that. But this is the start of it with games. And, you know, Sony's like, you know what, we're going to do it ourselves. We don't want, we don't want to help you. Um, so I think that's, that's exactly what, what's happening. It's going to be very similar to when Disney was giving Netflix, licensing all their stuff to Netflix. And then all of a sudden they pulled it all away when they decided, why would we do this when we could just make our own thing? And uh, I think that's exactly what Sony feels like right now. I mean, if I wanted to play devil's advocate, I don't, I don't know. I don't see them pulling, let's say Call of Duty, for instance. I don't see them pulling that from PlayStations. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, there are a lot more PlayStations out there than Xboxes, like we both said. So let's say if they wanted to make it a Microsoft Game Pass exclusive, essentially they could be killing call of duty themselves mm-hmm. part of why it's so popular is because it's been on consoles and predominantly because it's been on playstations 
if you then say, hey, you can't play this first-person shooter franchise on PlayStation when there are like three times more PlayStations than there are Xboxes, people will find another game to play. Yeah. And maybe this is an old-fashioned way of thinking. I'm a console gamer for the most part. I don't want to play games on my computer. I don't want to play games on my phone. I want to sit in front of a TV, play games on my TV. If you say you can't play Call of Duty, all right, I'll play Destiny. Or yeah. maybe there'll be some other game that comes out by then, right? Uh, I don't see them doing that with Call of Duty. I, one way they could get around this is, you know, as we've brought up in the past, game streaming is becoming built into TVs. Or, you know, for 2022, it's going to be built into TVs. Maybe moving forward, we could see a Microsoft Game Pass-enabled Samsung TV, right? Where you buy the TV and it comes with an Xbox controller. It comes with Microsoft Game Pass, one-year subscription for free for the first year. Um, Maybe then. But also, when you look at gaming studios, right? If you're a gaming studio, you make a lot more money for your studio and for your employees if you sell those games at $90 a pop, mm-hmm. as opposed to if you're part of this bigger corporation that, you know, is given unlimited access to all of their games for $15 a month, right? You don't make as much for your studio. You don't make as much for your employees. And maybe you don't make as much for your bonuses either. So, as a studio, let's say, if I had to decide, okay, am I going to license my stuff to Microsoft where I get an infinitesimal, you know, this ridiculously small portion of this $15 a month, or am I going to license my stuff to Sony where I could get, let's say, 30% out of their $90 per game? I'm going to go with Sony. I'm going to produce stuff for Sony. Because like you said, yeah, the Wii sold 13 million units or 13 million devices, people didn't want to produce for that. They didn't want to make develop games for that console. So if it's, okay, am I going to develop games for Microsoft, who's going to essentially give my game away for free? Or am I going to develop games for PlayStation, who has enough consoles and will sell my game? I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to PlayStation. Yeah. So I, I definitely see game streaming becoming a bigger thing in the future. But... And once again, I could just be old-fashioned. I could be a boomer. I don't see console gaming going away. And I don't see people buying games individually going away. I completely agree with you. Um, and, and that's why I say I, I, the ball is in Sony's court. Like, Sony has the ball. And essentially what they're saying with this purchase, in my opinion, is you want to make Call of Duty exclusive Microsoft? Go ahead. We'll make duty calls from Bungie. So... <laughs> You know, we don't have to worry about it Um, because at the end of the day, most people are playing their games on PlayStations. And if they can't access that Call of Duty game, we will make a direct competitor that they can play and they'll completely forget that Call of Duty ever existed. And I think because Sony won the console war, this is their this is their answer to the any idea of Call of Duty becoming exclusive is we'll just make our own. Yeah. Duty calls and Ola. Master Chef saving the day. Uh, I guess any closing statements of the episode? Uh, no, it's just uh, it's kind of, of interesting to see who is going to be the next studio to get purchased. Uh, who knows? We might see Sony or Microsoft buy CD Projekt and you know, Witcher games might become an exclusive or something like that. But is it definitely what we were saying last podcast? This definitely seems like like two companies going to war with each other. But I do think that the end of result is going to be, we're probably not going to see another Xbox console 10 years from now. And it's just going to be a streaming service, but we're probably going to see a PlayStation 6. I think these are two companies going in two completely different directions. Um, And Sony being like, you know, we don't want, we don't want you to be on our system. And Microsoft saying, but we want our system to be on everything. Mm -hmm. Do you think Nintendo makes a big game developer purchase? No. <laughs> no <laughs> they out of it. I think they completely stay out of it. The fact that uh, I, the one thing I think Nintendo has done so smartly, and I think a lot of people criticize them for, but I'm a big fan of, is 
The Switch is very low-powered, meaning that you can develop games a lot cheaper and a lot easier. You don't need 30 studios making Call of Duty games uh, the way that you do with like uh, an HD console like, like the, or a 4K console like the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Like, you know, Pokemon Arceus just came out and people are liking it. A lot of people are complaining that it doesn't look great. But hey, guess what? The fact that it doesn't look like, you know, uh, of God of War also means that it was a lot cheaper and a lot easier to develop. Um, and I definitely think that's a, a good thing for games. I think games have definitely gotten too expensive. I think Nintendo found a good way of being able to beat at their, at their own drum um, and not have to worry about what anyone else is doing. And I think Sony is taking following suit. They're being like, you know what? We know what we're good at. We're not going to fight with you, Microsoft. If you want to do something, we're just going to do our own thing. And I think Microsoft is doing the same thing. So I think this is the first time in, I can remember where you have three companies who have three completely different ideas of what um, console gaming or, or at-home gaming looks like. And I think as much as it might be a downside right now in terms of all these people buying studios, it could end up being a good thing of... Actually, no, I take that back. It's a bad thing. <laughs> it's it's going to be a bad thing, but it's just going to be interesting and. In, and the fact that it's going to be very different from what we've seen in the past. Yeah. All right. Uh, take it easy, everyone in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode.